It was late at night. We're looking at constellations. I was telling him about, you know, the stars. And he was just impressed that somebody would actually know that much. I thought that was normal. But then I realized that there was an appetite. There's a hunger in, in our species to understand the world around us. And that's when I realized that maybe what I want to do is to try to contribute whatever I can to that very species uniqueness of ours to understand the world around us. Welcome to Boulder, a podcast where you can learn how to change the world from the people who do. Hear from guests who are helping solve global issues like environment, health, and inequality to figure out how you can do the same. Boulder is a media platform that also includes our written content website, where we post articles to help you understand and act to solve global issues. So visit us at boulder.world. That's B-O-L-D-E-R dot W-O-R-L-D to learn more. Hey friends, I'm your host, Will Fritzler, and the voice at the beginning was Dr. Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado. Dr. Sanchez Alvarado is a molecular biologist who studies regenerative biology, or the science of how organisms regenerate tissues, which has promising applications for tackling human diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, and aging. He is the executive director and chief scientific officer at the Stowers Institute for Medical Research in Kansas City, and is an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. If you are at all interested in tackling human disease through medical research, or you simply want to learn how medical research is evolving and could improve to more effectively tackle our biggest human health challenges, look no further than my lively conversation with Dr. Sanchez Alvarado. Here it is. Hi, Dr. Sanchez Alvarado. It's an honor to be with you. It's my pleasure to be here with you as well. I wanted to start back in your early 20s and after you graduated from my school, Vanderbilt, and I read about your trip through South America. Of course, you grew up in Venezuela. So you returned to South America hoping to maybe get a research position and you decided instead to travel the continent for, I think it ended up being around eight months. Is that how long it was? That's about right. (laughs) And it's a story that I think a lot of our listeners envy and, and will want to have in their own right. I wanted to ask about at what point in that trip did you realize you wanted to give back to the world through scientific research? What was a particular point in time during that trip or a a seminal moment where you realized that that was your path? Yeah, that's a a terrific question, uh, Will. Uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, I undertook this trip essentially because uh, while it was at Vanderbilt, I realized that uh, many of my friends there had traveled to South America much more than I had. They were more knowledgeable of uh, the continent where I grew up. And so I wanted to ride that wrong. And I figured that, you know, I would go travel, visit as many countries as I can. And didn't plan very well. And so that's why it took eight months. Many countries <laughs> were much bigger. But I thought they were going to be Brazil in particular. That, that really took a brunt of yeah. all of our efforts. But to address your question, Will, there were 
perhaps not a singular moment that made me realize that it's what I wanted to do for not even as a career, but just as a call. I've always loved science. I always thought that I would actually end up being a scientist. What I really uh, took from this trip was that somehow, but, uh, you know, when you're young and uh, you have all your life before you and uh, you have a sense of uh, invincibility and immortality, those things are not as clearly cemented because there are many options before you. And so there were many things that uh, I could conceivably do. You know, I was good with numbers. I could do uh, administration. I could do banking. But I always felt that one of the things that would help the continent distinguish itself would be to somehow be able to understand the wonders of nature that are really encompassed in, in South America. I mean, the, the trips through the jungle were very, very wide open. I mean, they literally opened my eyes wide because of the immense diversity of biological forms that we were exposed to. That really uh, stuck with me. It stuck with me since my childhood. But the Brazilian jungle was uh, particularly striking. And then, you know, when you transition from the jungle up to the Andes and you see this dramatic change, of uh, landscape, ecosystems, species, uh, people, cultures, is even more dramatic. And I realized that as I talked to people who were really, really impoverished, how generous they were with their time and with the little that they had, the one thing that brought home to me the need for expanding human knowledge was a conversation I had with a a gentleman on a train uh, that was going from Brazil into Bolivia. And uh, there was no room in the cabin. So you have to go literally to the roof of the train to hang out with everybody because the, the, the compartment was full with, with goods that were going to be smuggled from one country yeah. to the other. And this gentleman just told me that that it was remarkable how much I knew about things because it was late at night. We're looking at constellations. I was telling him about, you know, the stars. And he was just impressed that somebody would actually know that much. I thought that was normal. But then I realized that there was an appetite, there's a hunger in, in our species to understand the world around us. And that's when I realized that maybe what I want to do is to try to contribute whatever I can to that very species uniqueness of ours to understand the world around us. And so that's one event. And little things like this just began to add up. And so that by the time I finished my, my, my journey, it was clear to me that what I wanted to do was to study biology. I really wanted to understand how life ticks at the molecular and cellular level. And I decided that from this point onward, I'm going to do everything that I can to try to uh, join that uh, scientific enterprise and then see how far I I may or may not be able to go. That's wonderful. I think a lot of young adults face, well, all young adults face the very same question you did of having a certain passion, but not quite knowing how to translate that into some sort of life work. So a follow-up would be, what sorts of advice do you give young adults listening who know that they're passionate about science, maybe they're a pre-medical student in college, but they don't exactly know what the right path is for them within that field? What sorts of advice do you give those people in terms of how they can determine what the best path within medicine is for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. If I had to make a recommendation, you do need to be honest with yourself. You do need to find out exactly not what makes you happy, 
pursuing happiness is a lofty goal and it's great to do. But I think that one of the things that will sustain you uh, through the years is knowing that uh, what you're doing is meaningful to you. And so if tending patients, being in the front lines of uh, disease, is what brings meaning to your life, is what really makes you feel uh, fulfilled and, and, and literally filled with, with meaning and purpose, do that. By all means, do that. Uh, but you need to know that uh, from the very get-go. Whether you go into medicine or research, it's going to be arduous and hard work. To be good at any of these things, you have to really burn uh, the candle at both ends. And so have that serious conversation with yourself. Check your premises. That's the second part of the recommendation I would make. It's something that I practice every four years or so. I actually take some time off and, and I ask myself, where have I been? What have I done? And uh, are my premises correct? And so do an exercise wow. of checking your premises every so often. And then that will give you some guideposts as to whether or not you are going the way you want to go, meaningfully enough, or you have deviated somehow. And if that deviation is an opportunity, check your premises. Is that really the path you want to take? Or do you have to take corrective action? But this is really uh, something that I wish I would have done earlier in my life. I only began to do that, you know, after this journey in South America, <laughs> and then after I came back to the States to get my PhD. But I've been doing it consistently pretty much since my late 20s and early 30s, just this exercise of checking my premises and, and see whether or not what I'm doing still brings me meaning and joy. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I have a similar approach in my life where I try to make sure that my biggest values are represented every day. And I think when everything you do somehow fits into your biggest values and what is most meaningful to you in life, then everything is worth it and everything makes sense. Everything feels right. And I think that exercise of determining what those values are or what those premises are in your words is extremely worthwhile. So that's a, a lovely point. I'm sure one of your premises is helping cure human disease and using your research to apply to human health. And that is where I wanted to jump into the subject of your research, which mm -hmm. many more people would benefit from knowing about. I think it's safe to say after reading about it. So I wanted to ask about the nature of regenerative medicine because you are a world leader in regenerative biology. You study rare or unique species and their regenerative capabilities and how we can apply that potentially to solving intractable challenges in human health. So the first question I wanted to ask is a general one. What do you believe regenerative medicine is capable of in terms of curing human injury and disease? And just to Add to that, in your TED Talk, your wonderful TED Talk you gave, you identified three major human ailments that, that we have focused on, cancer, aging, and degenerative disorders. So thinking in the lens of those three, what do you view as the potential of your research in regenerative medicine to solve these very deep human health problems? So... I'm going to take a step back and ask the following question as a premise, which is, 
Why haven't we solved these problems yet? We have seen tremendous uh, advances, leaps, in, in fact, quantum leaps in our understanding of uh, cellular uh, and molecular processes underpinning not just uh, biology in general, but also human biology. And yet these problems remain unassailable. We have not been able to solve them satisfactorily. Cancer continues to aff afflict millions of people in, in this country. And genetic diseases are on an upward march of incidence because of our aging population across the globe. That includes things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and, and, and others. And then, of course, the problem of aging. How can you actually ameliorate or improve you know, the last years of somebody's life, such that they are not burdened with all the maladies that are normally associated with the process of aging. Most physicians will attest that in the absence of any obvious cause, like a disease or some other pre-existing condition, we don't know why we die. We don't know why we die. So I want to start from that point. We don't know why we get cancer. We don't know why we have degenerative disorders, and we don't know why we die. So I think that understanding those questions would be a remarkable uh, step forward in helping us identify potential therapeutic interventions to address these matters. But the questions of why are questions of foundational research. These are the questions that what people refer to as basic scientists are actually going to be asking and trying to address, right? And so there is a slight, I would say, sociological disconnect between foundational research and the type of research that will ultimately deliver, you know, a therapeutic intervention. People refer to that research, translational research, as translational research. We do that uh, quite frequently in, in, in conversations. And so <clears throat> the thing with foundational research is that it is not obvious that what these individuals are doing is actually going to result in a utility-driven application. And so when I look at regenerative biology and how much we don't know about regeneration, it's very difficult for me to imagine that what we know from regenerative biology would actually help propel forward in significant ways regenerative medicine, right? So I think that the possibilities for regenerative medicine are huge. They are huge. Those are the possibilities. The probabilities that will realize those possibilities is actually tied inextricably to our ability to do foundational research. In the absence of foundational research, regenerative medicine will be possible, but will not be very probable. So if we want to make it a reality, we really need to expand our understanding of all of these uh, conditions that you mentioned at the beginning. And they all have to have a biological root that is based on normal, not even pathological, but normal biological functions that we do not understand quite well. So why? Because for the past 50, 60, or 70 years, most of the second half of the, uh, the 20th century, the problems of uh, development, developmental biology, have pretty much focused on embryonic development. But if you take that embryonic development is nine months, and that you and I will likely get to live to 80, if not longer, if we're lucky, nine months is a fraction of a percent of our lifespan. And so when do these maladies arise? Well, they, they arise post-embryonically. They arise hopefully beyond youth and beyond, you know, the, the middle, middle years of your age. And that biology of how we sustain our bodies for as long as we can sustain them for 80 years is pretty much unknown. And so we have not invested a great deal of time in doing the foundational research that would allow us to understand 
why you and I are not dropping dead like flies. And, 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 and even if you think about how complex our body is, so many things could go wrong at any given time. And somehow we managed to get, you know, past our 50s, past our 60s and the like. Those are big mysteries in biology. And, and those mysteries can only be addressed by doing, you know, foundational research. I, I think that in the near future, well, it would be possible to uh, try to address some of these single cell disorders. Like if you lose, were to lose a neuron or a cardiac cell, we should be able to regenerate those tissues. And those therapies will probably come. But that's a simple therapy, right? That's just modifying or introducing a very pure cell type into a tissue that may have lost that cell as a yeah. consequence of these three maladies you mentioned at the beginning. But to go from there to regenerate a whole heart or to regenerate a whole limb or to regenerate an entire spinal cord, we're not quite there yet. It is possible, but it's not probable yet because right. we haven't done the necessary foundational research to try to envision what those therapeutic interventions uh, should look like. That's a great segue into the set of questions that I think should form the core of this conversation, which is what can be done to improve foundational research. So I'll start by asking, what is it about the scientific community that needs to change what sorts of structures need to adapt or evolve in order to allow this foundational research to flourish and to become the standard bearer such that issues like cancer, aging, Alzheimer's can be tackled more quickly and effectively? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question. One of the secret sauces that has made this country a remarkable leader in life sciences and in research and technological have its moment when the NIH was established. This is the National Institutes of Health was established in, in this country. Mm. The investigator initiated uh, research grant was made a integral part of the way in which funding for research was being decided at the time. This is a famous R01 grants that any investigator at an institution comes up with an idea and they write their idea on a piece of paper and they submit this to the NIH. It is reviewed by, by peers and they decide, oh, this is a great idea, let's fund it. That was the original idea. And that really propelled the biological sciences and medical sciences in this country to remarkable heights. This was the country that sequenced the human genome. This was the country that, you know, in, essentially, if not invented, at least cemented the science of molecular biology, uh, genetics, cell biology. And of course, this is all, you know, a combination of multiple people from multiple countries, but it was done here. The ecosystem in which all this work was done was here in the United States. And that was really generously funded by the federal government. However, as time went by, the management of this allocation of funds became less ambitious, in my opinion, and became much more focused on attainable goals. And so there's been a progressive creeping of what are really good business practices in business, populating the way in which these funds are being administered and distributed to the people who are gonna do the research. So what do I mean by that? Uh, in science, a good scientist will always want to ask the biggest and most complex questions. And those questions are going to take many years to address, okay? We don't have time. We're not immortal that we can actually ask a lot of little questions. 
we just don't. It's just counter to what science should be about. The problem is that when you write a grant, now it is expected that you are going to present specific aims and goals that are attainable within the four or five years that the grant is going to be funded by. So what happens then is that what is being proposed is very modest. These are modest goals that are achievable in a short period of time. I will tell you that, you know, understanding the origins of life, you will not be able to solve that with an NIH grant that only lasts four or five years. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Right. So it, it, it might actually take a whole career. So one thing that, that really needs to happen, in my opinion, is that that, that runway that allows scientists to ask ambitious questions and try to go at them as rigorously and as methodically as science dictates needs to be expanded. It needs to be made longer. Absolutely. I'm sure in your time in medicine and with HHMI and with the Stowers Institute, you have gleaned some leadership lessons about how to be that driving force that creates those changes, such as improving the grant system and allowing for more ambitious inquiry. If there's a listener who really wants to not just contribute to the body of medical research, but to reform the very system in which medical research take, takes place, which seems to be an extremely important goal for the scientific community. What sorts of leadership lessons can they draw from your experience to do that? Wow, that's a really good question. It's not been my uh, intention, and I'm not being very deliberate about you know being a leader. I've just had, had the opportunity to identify some needs and try to fill those needs as best as I can. There are opportunities we present to individuals like myself and others where their voices can be heard. So you may end up being at a study section in the NIH. You may serve uh, on, on council at one of the National Institutes of Health Institutes. And those are places where you can actually voice your opinion and then start planting the seeds that some changes will be needed. And I have to tell you, the, the system for the most part actually works. Because when you get to know people at the NIH, either in study section or at the institutes, what you find is equally dedicated people to advancing the mission of science, but they have to go by what they hear from their constituents. That's us, the scientists. Mm -hmm. So if we don't make an effort uh, to actually express our opinions in the corridors of the institutions, it'll be very, very difficult to, to affect some change. And the other thing I would have to say is persistence. You have to essentially have a mantra. This is what I'm going to talk about every single time we talk about this. We're going to talk about this. And then yeah. what do we do to improve this, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you have to be persistent without being annoying. There's a fine line between the two. <laughs> uh, and then you have to also be open to identify that maybe other people have better ideas than you do. In trying to address this problem, don't stay quiet. and Don't only discuss these things among your friends. When you're given an opportunity to actually speak up, uh, in front of the people who are going to be making decisions, that's the time to actually express your, your ideas. So be prepared to, to express these ideas in as cogent and as convincing uh, uh, a way as possible. Yeah. So I want to ask, what is it about Howard Hughes organizationally that other research institutes can learn from to help build this ecosystem or perhaps put a little differently 
for a young adult who wants to change the medical research process, what sorts of actions can they take, not so much with respect to NIH, which is sort of the standard bearer of medical research, but more in the lens of private research institute institutions like HHMI, what sorts of organizational changes do these places need to undergo in order to become this much more innovative, ambitious, and trailblazing place for research? Anybody who's interested in, in improving or creating new ecosystems like this essentially will have to identify a, a source of funding that will allow this to happen. That's usually done through philanthropy. The, the major, major institutions that are doing foundational research have actually found their funding from a private donor, and they have actually left an indelible mark on the uh, landscape of scientific research and, and, and human knowledge generation. I mean, I can talk about the Carnegie Institution, for example, which was founded by Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie donated his entire fortune to philanthropy. And one of the recipients is the Carnegie Institute. And the Carnegie Institute is responsible for, you know, some really key advances uh, in our understanding of biology. The work of Barbara McClinton, for example, was actually funded by, by the Carnegie Institute. Howard Hughes, same thing. Very, very wealthy individual that had a run with the government, did not want to pay taxes, and came up with this notion that he's going to open a not-for-profit. So, Taxes are not paid to the federal government because he felt mistreated by the federal government. And that, that foundation is going to be dedicated to medical research. And so HGMI emerges now as one of the most remarkable engines for the past quarter of the 20th century, if not a little longer, in identifying and providing the necessary resources for talented individuals to really push the needle, to really change the way we think about biological problems. We have more recent ones, my own institute, the Stowers Institute. Uh, this was the personal fortunes of Jim and Virginia Stowers, who decided that they were going to open an institute that was going to be dedicated to understand the secrets of life. That is my institute's mission statement. Just think about it for just, for just one second. <laughs> Our job is to understand the secrets of life. And the notion for doing that is because if we do understand that, we will be able to improve our health we will be able to identify a way to tackle some of this as we, we discussed earlier on. That's a private foundation, right? And I think the reason why it's so attractive, Will, is because we as a species are the best way that, in fact, we're probably the only way by which life can understand itself. I mean, yeah. this is such a high calling for a biologist, right? We mm -hmm. are the way to understand life. Life is, is allowing us to understand itself to us, right? Because we do experiments, we ask questions, right? And so it's incredibly attractive for anybody with curiosity or, or interest in, in, in the surrounding world to be able to envision that at some point we'll be able to realize this. And so a, a young person that wants to get involved with these matters, I would suggest that they really try their best to learn their craft. And then if an opportunity presents themselves to provide this vision to people who really want to do good, people who want to do philanthropy, to try to convince those individuals to think about funding the biological sciences, to think about funding the life sciences, and, and, and give them a reason for doing so, it's not going to be that difficult because of the tremendous you know, advantages that uh, our entire world would uh, derive from being able to understand the causes and, and roots of all kinds of 
diseases and, 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 and afflictions. And there are many such challenges that we're going to be seeing in, in, in the decades ahead that uh, we need to, to meet uh, head on. And new opportunities will arise and, and, and new challenges will arise. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I will ask a couple of follow-ups to that. One being, uh, in my research, I have found that funding is among the most important mechanisms for determining the scope and effectiveness of medical research. Funding is very much step one, and that's sort of the point that you made. I'm curious to know your thoughts on public funding as well, because you mentioned the National Institutes of Health, and presumably they play a quite large role in dictating what medical research gets done or doesn't get done in the United States, or perhaps even around the world. So how can listeners or people in general go about making scientific research a greater priority at the level of the federal government, particularly with the National Institutes of Health, how do people approach that challenge of convincing legislators to fund the NIH more or convincing NIH leaders to change their grant writing process so that it allows for more innovation? How do you target those sorts of actors in the public sector or maybe target's not the right word, but how do you convince those actors in the public sector that this is a worthwhile cause? I, I will tell you what I think is going to be a really powerful argument for our fellow citizens, my neighbors, your neighbors, the people we see at the grocery store, our community, to try to convey to our elected representatives that science does really matter. And the best example I think I can give you is, you know, the vaccines for COVID-19. I mean, that was that all started with basic foundational research that was done about 20 years ago when somebody decided that they were going to inject RNA, mRNA, straight into muscle, hoping that that would be a good therapy to deal with muscle, you know, uh, degenerative disorders. And that is the basis of the foundational research that made today's vaccines, especially the RNA vaccines, possible. Why did it take 20 years to actually go from that technology? to just last year try for the first time to develop a vaccine using RNA technology. It takes a really long time. And so since we already have a system that was working, why do we want to invent a new one? That kind of thinking needs to change, though. That's like asking, why do I need a combustion engine when I already have a steam engine? That kind of thinking is the one that we need to start taking apart. Because, I mean, the RNA vaccines, essentially, it's not even going from the steam engine to the combustion engine. It's going from the steam engine to a jet engine. I mean, it is a huge leap. And, and the reason why we were able to do it in a short period of time, funding, it is because there was funding available from the federal government to allow places like uh, Moderna, for example, and other uh, companies to be able to do the necessary R&D and the necessary clinical trials to be able to bring that idea into a safe product that could then be mass-produced and distributed to the population. This would have normally taken five to 10 years, but we were able to do it in one year. Now, imagine if we use the same mentality to address other questions in, 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 in fundamental and foundational biology. We would know in, in a short period of time 
all of the things, or at least not all, but most of the things we would need in order to be able to uh, advance science. So what I would say is that, you know, if you belong to a, to a book club, for example, why, and the book is on science, why not conclude reading the book by each of the members of your book club sitting down and writing a letter to your representative saying, science is important. And this is why we think it's important. My children will benefit from this. My grandchildren will benefit from this. Our world will benefit from this. We should be doing it. And so these are the kinds of examples that if we can explain to fellow citizens of the importance and relevance to their lives and the lives of the future generations, that they can actually, armed with these arguments, have a compelling letter, a compelling message to give to their elected representatives. And in due course, if enough of this happens, we will force our hands to say, well, maybe we should really double you know, the NIH budget. Dollar for dollar, that might be one of our better investments for the health of our communities, for the health of our country, even for global health, for example. And so it, it, it really would require that kind of activity. We scientists, I believe, need to do a much better job of conveying how science is important to all of us, not just to scientists, you know, but to all of us. I think it's very difficult to explain, but, you know, we should make an effort to try to explain it clearly. Yeah, that's wonderful. I will ask one follow-up to that, and then we'll get to our closing questions. I think you touch on a very important point that I've heard in my time talking about global challenges with different leaders, and that is the power of citizens educating themselves mm -hmm. about important issues, such as issues in global health. And one thing I have found just, you know, reading books over the summer for fun, for example, is that there's an astonishing amount of medical discovery taking place that very few people know about. Mm -hmm. And I think there would be so many more talented individuals studying medicine and going into health fields, going into research like yourself, if they knew the vast potential of the medical community to do tremendous things, both what they've done in the past and what they're doing currently that people can get involved with. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on the everyday acts that people can take to perhaps not be this transformational force in medical research, but on a more basic level to inform themselves on the, the problems of human health and start to understand what they can do, not just to prevent those problems from afflicting them, but actually starting to build the systems as everyday citizens to create better health outcomes for the rest of us. So how can listeners educate themselves on d discoveries and breakthroughs in health such as yours? And you mentioned that scientists have a role to play in that, but what is the role of the everyday citizen in that quest? And just in general, what can a, a citizen do in the span of a single day to help over time build these innovative and hugely impactful medical systems? I think the key thing is we have to remain curious, see what scientists are doing. So remain curious, read with abandon, and try to identify a trusted source of information and subject a trusted source to questions. Make sure that you keep them honest. There's a lot of competing echoes out there that are devoid of substance. 
And so uh, you want to really go to the substance. The style is irrelevant. You want to go for substance. And that requires a little bit more uh, effort, but uh, it's one that will definitely enrich your life. Um, podcasts like yours and the ability to be able to have a conversation with, with a scientist and be able to identify a trusted source of information, this should be part of the uh, engaged citizen armamentarium. It, it has to be. Thank you for that. And to close, I always like to ask our guests their vision for where their work could lead and what our future may look like according to the work you do. So to close, I will ask you, what is your vision for the future of human health? My hope is that, you know, 50 years from now, we look at the practice of medicine today and think of it, oh my goodness, that was very primitive. And look at what they were doing back then. I do think that our ability to extract huge amounts of biological information from relatively small amounts of tissue is going to transform the way in which we think about medicine. Being able to follow the dynamics of a genome in a particular cell of a particular tissue is actually going to change the way we think about medicine. Knowing what your genes look like for each individual that a physician sees would also revolutionize the way in which we think about uh, our health. And the last thing that I would say is that Health in the future is also going to depend tremendously on the health of the planet. Those two things are going to be inextricably linked. So an opportunity for the life sciences is to actually begin to not abandon, but exit the confines of their laboratories and start looking at the world and then see how the world is actually changing. So there may be a future in medicine where these two things are going to be essentially indistinguishable from each other. What we put in our bodies and what we're exposed to out there may actually determine a great deal how we're going to treat uh, diseases uh, in the human population in, in the decades ahead. Dr. Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado, it was an absolute pleasure. You are an inspiring voice who I believe will help our listeners understand the future of medical research and the potential we have to achieve amazing health outcomes if only we set our minds to it as you are doing in your research. So Dr. Sanchez Alvarado, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Will. I am equally grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to spend this time with you today. Thank you very much. Friends, that was Dr. Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado. Dr. Sanchez Alvarado is incredibly passionate about doing good through biological research. And I hope his passion rubbed off on you the way it did on me. Among the topics we covered were the importance of finding meaningful work by checking your premises, the dramatic breakthroughs that could be on the horizon in regenerative medicine, how to improve medical research institutions to produce quicker, more incisive research, and much more. To access our show notes and other content related to Dr. Sanchez Alvarado's story, please visit our website, boulder.world. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a thing. We would also love to connect with you on social media. You can find Boulder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at the username at GoingBoulder. That's G-O-I-N-G, Boulder. You'll find all our content and other fun stuff we're developing there. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the username, my name, at Will Fritzler. That's W-I-L-L-F-R-I-T-Z 
L-E-R. That's all for today's episode. I'm Will Fritzler, and on behalf of the Boulder team, thank you so very much for listening. I'm sincerely sorry for the long delay between episodes, but we're excited to bring you lots of new content soon. Be good to each other, and as always, go Boulder. Boulder.